Hello and welcome to the Muni Lowdown. My name is Paul Graves and I'm the managing editor for Deadwire Municipals. Joining me today are my colleague Seth Brumby, the deputy editor, and the assistant editor, Mary Ellen Ty. Seth, been a lot, well, there's been a lot of activity across the board in the municipal market, but certainly there's been some rumblings with Puerto Rico and the U.S. Virgin Islands, particularly on the trading side. What's been going on? You know, it was interesting. At, at the end of last week, there was this very eerie quiet coming out of uh, Puerto Rico, um, particularly with, for us, the, the barometer being court filings. Normally on Fridays, you get hit with a bunch of filings, and uh, it was dead silent. And I think a lot of that had to do with the fact that people on the island and related to the bankruptcy were just in shock over the over Hurricane Maria. But that moment of silence was very short-lived, and this week we've had lots of activity. The benchmark Puerto Rico general obligation bonds issued in 2014 plumbed new lows this week, breaking into the high 40s. The uh, United States Virgin Islands, which suffered two Category 5 hurricanes, Irma at the start of September, and then later Maria, those bonds too are taking a hit in the secondary market. And it's interesting because obviously Puerto Rico has already defaulted on its debt service. It's a much larger capital stack, so therefore it's much more liquid too. USVI has much less debt, I think only about $3 billion when you look across the entire credit complex. But those bonds finally started to trade in the wake of the hurricanes, and the market sentiment of those was also very negative. Now, obviously, there's a lot of problems for both places to be wrestling with in terms of recovery efforts, but they were already very weak financially to begin with. And I think the market prices just reflect the amount of uncertainty. For Puerto Rico, it's what is going to be the recovery for bondholders, knowing that you're already in default. And for the USVI, it's, okay, what are your what's your time frame here in terms of recovering your economy and whether or not you might have to go through a default in the meantime and a restructuring too. I think for the USVI, that's certainly much more speculative at this point. Um, they, the security for the USVI bonds, at least so far that we can see, is uh, stronger. There, there are a lot of times uh, the debt service payments are pushed into accounts that are separate from the USVI's uh, treasury box. So well, it has yet to remain to be seen what kind of impact this might have on bonds for the USVI, but just generally speaking, uh, these are pretty dire situations. There was development as well this week with the Puerto Rico Electric Power Authority, a.k.a. PREPA, in terms of bondholders making an offer and the government responding. And for our audience, we're taping on Thursday afternoon, September 28th, and we're talking about the latest developments as of this morning. So what was the offer, Seth, and then what was the government's response? Just in a nutshell, the bondholder, the ad hoc PREPA bondholder group was offering about a billion dollars in liquidity to PREPA to restore its grid and just basically try and restore power to the island. The government uh, this afternoon, being Thursday, rejected that. And the idea was, it sounded like the bondholders were, in addition to providing some liquidity to PREPA, trying to do what they could to lock in the 85-cent recovery that they had initially within a restructuring support agreement, which fell apart once PREPA filed for Title III earlier this summer. So, you know, like they say, never let a, 
opportunity go to waste or never let a, what's that saying? Never let a crisis go to waste. Uh, and it sounds like the government felt as though prep, or excuse me, prep of bondholders were being a little opportunistic. That said, I mean, you can't rebuild a grid for an island without liquidity. And so far, the bondholders were the first ones to offer that. We'll wait till we see what we get from the federal government. But there's lots of other things that went on this week, too. I mean, the USVI had their waiting, ratings withdrawn because, really, the ratings agencies don't have any information that they can rely on to maintain their ratings. So that might have also been uh, part of the reason why for the sell-off in USVI bonds. Um, now, specifically, Fitch this week, that or today, I should say, withdrew their ratings. Yeah, Mary Ellen, just roping you into this with PREPA, I mean, if you can get 85 cents on the dollar, that'd be a great recovery. But if that's juxtaposition against an entire island that has no power, that seems like that's going to be a real difficult deal for the government to agree to. Yeah, it was, if it is similar to the deal that was sort of falling apart with the Title III, it was a deal that previous governors had looked at. Um, I think Seth raises a good point that you need liquidity. And I think it's also interesting that these people who so recently had their offer rebuffed were the first ones to the table. I don't know what that says about anyone, but I, I think that's interesting that even though it was a, a debtor in possession, so they would be moving to the front of the line, um, I, I guess it's nice to see someone at least trying. Yeah, I mean, they. they they stepped up, and yes, granted, you know, there's there's a silver lining for them in having stepped up with some liquidity, but at the same time, I mean, we haven't seen anybody else offer the island money, and it sounds like they're waiting on federal relief, too, and who knows how uncertain that process is. I mean, we can't really rely on, on Congress to be doing much recently. They're certainly distracted with their own issues. Yeah, FEMA, we might have touched on this last week, has directed their funding from some other crises, uh, I think the Orville Dam, to the disasters from these hurricanes. So it's obvious that there's still some, maybe like gears to be worked through at the federal level. So this is going to be quite fascinating to watch unfold because I can't emphasize enough just how important all it is with both, US, both the U.S. Virgin Islands and Puerto Rico that they're islands islands, excuse me. And this adds another layer of complexity to any kind of recovery. And you wonder how long can the government, I'll use the word hold out in the sense of finding a way of funding the necessary uh, power grid improvements and rehabilitation that's needed while you have people on the island without power, where the two of the biggest things in, in need are D batteries and portable fans. So you just wonder how long the citizens are going to be willing uh, to endure this without any progress. Um, but, uh, Mary Ellen, with, on the court filings, anything new develop on that front with Puerto Rico? Yeah, thanks, Paul. One of the big questions Seth was alluding to earlier is just uncertainty in Puerto Rico and the USVI. And there were... There's a scheduled October 4th hearing in Puerto Rico that has been delayed to an undetermined date. There's been suggestions for October 18th, um, just to give them more time, two weeks. And there's also been a suggestion of basically just saying we're going to skip the October hearing and the next one will be the previously scheduled November hearing. 
So if that gives anyone an idea, just like, let's move everything back by a month and just pretend that this whole month never happened, which is sort of huge in a court case. There were a couple developments, um, mostly in rulings out by people, by the judges who don't sit in Puerto Rico. Um, the judge who sits up in Boston, Judge Judith Dean, allowed the unsecured creditor committee to intervene in an adversary proceeding. Basically, it will just allow them to be heard in a complaint regarding whether or not the Puerto Rico Oversight Management and Economic Stability Act, or sorry, whether the Title III violates the Puerto Rico Oversight Management and Economic Stability Act. Um, and then Judge Laura Taylor Swain in New York said that San Juan will not be able to intervene in uh, the Government Development Bank, which is the bank down there is restructuring. Uh, they had been looking to stop votes on that restructuring. Yeah, I, I believe the uh, municipality of San Juan, you know, they had already had a seat at the table, or at least could make an appearance in court and try and do what they could to influence the restructuring agreement. I think what they were asking for specifically was to delay the solicitation of votes for the restructuring support agreement. Uh, I think the I, I had covered this trial, so I, I'm a little more intimate with it than I am some of the other adversary proceedings. There are 30 of them, um, <laughs> but, but it, the the uh, San Juan is basically saying, you know, we were a depositor with the Government Development Bank, and our deposits are not an unsecured claim against the Government Development Bank, and yet the restructuring support agreement puts us all into one class with unsecured bondholders. And we want to delay the solicitation for voting on this restructuring support agreement until we have classes of creditors that can better, uh, more accurately reflect our claims. And the, they wanted specifically a preliminary injunction against the voting. And that's a really high standard. And it's not to say that, they will alt that the San Juan will ultimately lose in blocking the restructuring support agreement. But to sit there and ask for a judge to, to stop the entire process, you need to prove that eventually when you do go to trial, you will win. And that's a really hard thing to do. So the judge rejected that, and the voting will move forward. And I think they'll probably live to fight another day during the confirmation trial, which I'm sure we'll see at some point before the end of the year. So, Seth, because there are some 30-some-odd cases, and we talk about this on a regular basis, just want to remind our audience of, of one thing. When we talk about adversary proceedings, why is that different in, in the context of these Title III court restructuring proceedings? Or how are they connected? What's the difference? Just so it's clear to everyone that's listening. Sure. It's, it's just it's ancillary litigation uh, between stakeholders and the debtor that is core to the restructuring but is not the restructuring itself. I mean, restructuring is, is pretty straightforward. You get your petition, you get the automatic stay against any litigation from your creditors. You then take a look at all your contracts and you decide which ones you want to keep, which ones you want to reject. Then you put out a plan of reorganization with a disclosure statement. You ask people to vote on it and then you confirm that plan. That's what your restructuring proceedings are. That's really the core of what these Title III proceedings are on the island. When you have an adversary proceeding, it normally means that one of your creditors or many of your creditors don't like what you're doing as a debtor. They think it's illegal, unconstitutional, what have you. So they file what's called an adversary proceeding, which is litigation that still could affect the restructuring, but it is not the restructuring. I guess that's the best way to distinguish it. Thanks for that. 
why don't we shift gears a bit, Mary Ellen, and go to Toshiba slash Westinghouse, Santee Cooper. What's going on there? There were a couple big items this week regarding uh, Westinghouse, which filed for Chapter Wow, they do Chapter 11 bankruptcy. They're a corporate. Sorry, guys. Um, and the reason we're interested in them as a municipal product is that there are a couple municipalities, municipal agencies who are heavily uh, invested in a couple Westinghouse plants, one of which is the South Carolina Public Service Authority. They have about half of the VC Summer plant. And this week, they sold their portion of a Toshiba guarantee to Citigroup. They're going to receive all of the money in the near term rather than um, spread out between now and 2022. So that's a really big credit positive. There are a lot of people that are concerned that Toshiba won't be able to pay. However, some of those concerns might have been decreased because a day after Santee Cooper announced that they'd sold this Toshiba stake, Toshiba announced that they had sold or reached an agreement to sell their their memory chip business, which is really their most lucrative part of their business. And that's what everyone was looking to, to sort of fulfill these guarantees that would be to the nuclear plants in the U.S. Interesting. Seth, uh, wanted to circle back to you about just trading activity outside of Puerto Rico and the U.S. Virgin Islands. I know you had seen some stuff with Pennsylvania and American Dream over the last couple of weeks. Yeah, the, the, the municipal market this year is not quite as hot as it was last year. Fund flows are down, new issuance is down, and I think this creates a problem for a lot of mutual funds and people on the buy side that probably more actively manage their investments. Really, they're searching for yield, and what this created was a dynamic where you saw lots of bullish trading in the market that maybe was a little overdone. Earlier this month, we were looking at Pennsylvania general obligation debt, which had tightened relative to the credit risk presented by the fact that they didn't have a budget. Um, They had a spending budget. They didn't have a revenue budget. So in light of this, though, the, the spreads on general obligation debt issued by Pennsylvania began to tighten. And we had pointed that out, and we said this is still, this is, there, there are no credit positives in Pennsylvania right now looking at the dysfunction in the state. So why do these spreads keep widening? And spreads actually, instead of, excuse me, why do spreads keep tightening? And uh, in pointing that out, the market seemed to correct itself and spreads gapped back out again. And they seem to be there over the past couple of weeks. There's another case that we are watching more in the high yield market with the American Dream bonds issued out of New Jersey. This is probably one of the hairiest high yield deals the market has seen in a very long time. It's to essentially finance the completion of the largest mall in North America that uh, has long been a a source of, I guess, a blemish (laughs) among New Jersey's many blemishes. Um, But these bonds, I mean, they were issued at the start of the summer um, at a slight discount, if I recall correctly, and these things have just rallied up to 117. They have not looked back. And it looks like this week they finally leveled off. And we don't know if the trading will continue to be bullish or if maybe they've hit their ceiling. It wouldn't surprise me if they've hit their ceiling considering all the selling pressure right now. But um, these are these are trading dynamics that we'll continue to look at in the municipal market. We sort of see them as benchmarks for credit sentiment. And if we see that their American dream starts to sell off, 
Um, and we see that Pennsylvania debt continues to either widen or at least maintain where it has been, along with the increased selling pressure in Puerto Rico, it, it, it might lead people to conclude that the municipal market will end the year on a very weak note. All right. Now we'll shift gears again. What would a muni podcast be without a good sports stadium story? Uh, and this is one that's developing with the KFC Yum Center. Folks might not be familiar with it, but it's where the University of Louisville in Kentucky plays their games. Uh, so you have about 346 million in bonds outstanding uh, for the center that's issued through the Kentucky Economic Development Finance Authority. Because a lot of, well, not a lot of times in. In certain muni sectors, you have these issuers that's an authority that issues bonds on behalf of the borrower. And in this case, it's the Louisville Arena Authority uh, that runs the KFC Yum Center. Now, why are these bonds in some question moving forward? Well, over the past couple of days, uh, their legendary basketball coach, Rick Pitino, uh, well, he's been put on indefinite leave, which means he's getting fired but i guess the, the quickest way they could respond via what you know the contracts is they put him on leave um and that's going to have uh you know whether or not you follow college basketball they're a well-known top 10 program their coach well-known he coached at kentucky as well as at louisville he won a championship at louisville um, but in the last several years, he's been involved in a couple of scandals, and there's just a concern that with the chaos in terms of losing, you know, the season is going to start in October, and you lose your head coach, uh, that just creates a very chaotic situation. It also creates a lot of uncertainty for any recruits that were coming in. They've all they already lost a couple of top flight recruits, and so. Why are we talking about this? Because if the basketball team isn't any good, people probably aren't going to come to the stadium. They need people in the stadium to bring in revenues so that they can pay for these bonds. Uh, these bonds that, are, that go out, I should uh, add, to 2042. So it doesn't mean that all is lost for the university, but when you have situations like this, you could be looking at five years maybe before the program becomes relevant again or longer. Yeah, one of the things that we look at with stadiums, um, I mean, I have to admit, I, I don't know much about this particular stadium, and I, and I don't follow college basketball, but, you know, it's it'll be interesting to see what their other revenue mixes are like. You know, most stadiums, they too trying to cut their attendance with various other events. I mean, you take a look at Yankee Stadium, which, you know, hosts the New York Football Club in addition to concerts and graduation ceremonies, too, uh, as a way to keep attendance flowing throughout the year when the Yankees aren't playing and but that's also in New York, where you have uh, probably a lot more diverse revenue sources. So I, it'll be interesting to see what the exposure is of this stadium to just uh, collegiate basketball crowds. My guess is it probably takes up a line share of the revenue, but we'll have to we'll have to dig into the financials to figure that out. Right, because uh, the situation here is that the University of Louisville that's their main tenant. Uh, so if Louisville, for whatever reason, isn't doing well and isn't bringing in fans to the stadium, 
or to the arena, I should say, that could create some challenges uh, for bonds that had already experienced some challenges because they had to do a refinancing to, to stretch out the repayment period. So uh, it'll be another uh, situation to watch. Uh, but Mary Ellen, let's swing, uh, bring it back to the Northeast with Hartford in the state of Connecticut. What's the latest there? Hartford, Connecticut hosted a bondholder call earlier this week where the mayor said that the city will need uh, significant and reoccurring state rent revenue to avoid a Chapter 9. Even if it is able to restructure its bonds, that won't be enough to stave off bankruptcy. It needs state aid, um, which would come from the state budget, which the governor vetoed earlier this week. So that'll be interesting to see. The big date we're watching for Hartford is the end of October, October 31st, is when they have a tax anticipation note due. Um, so that's really when they need to, it's when the rubber hits the road, so to speak. Yeah, that's, that's the trigger for Hartford. And I know that Assured had reached out to them trying to offer some kind of debt relief. But I think the big issue is, well, there's two of them now. I mean, the, 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 the state governments doesn't gotten its act together with the budget. And, you know, then you have this trigger for this short-term debt coming due. And, you know, that this all unfolds really within the next four weeks. So, Seth, when you're referring to Assured, just for the audience that may not be up to speed. Sure. Assured Guarantee is the bond insurer on roughly half of Hartford's general obligation debt. And, you know, they, it sounds like they're trying to do what they can to help the city through this difficult time. But really what Assured can do is it can't help them pay for the $20 million trans unless it wants to lend them money. And bond insurers are not really in the business of giving direct lending. They're in the business, of course, of insurance. So we'll see how far that relief can go. But on the other side, uh, kind of on the revenue side, you have the state government, which there's still a lot of uncertainty there as to what kind of aid it can deliver down to the city and other municipalities in Connecticut. So another fascinating situation uh to watch, and it'll all be kind of coming to some sort of conclusion, I should say, right around Halloween. Uh, or maybe the, maybe the conclusion of the prologue. I mean, if they, if they default around Halloween, this will be the start of their restructuring. And it is a, uh, it's a long process for Connecticut. And just very quickly, if, if, if Hartford does file for bankruptcy like it's threatening to, it's really not that easy. They need to, first the mayor needs to ask the governor for a study. And the governor needs to ask the state legislature for that study, and the state legislature needs to sign off and complete it and then send it down to the city council. So it's a very long process, too, and it's, it's no slam dunk that we'll see an end to this in October. We might just see the beginning of what is a very long political restructuring. Well, we'll be certain to keep everyone uh, up to speed on developments. Hope you've enjoyed this latest episode of the Muni Lowdown. Talk to everyone next week.